right, well, if you could begin making your way back to your seats, and as you do, grab your Bibles, and uh, maybe your sermon notes book, if... Uh, if you need or have one of those, and uh, adults, if that seems like something that you'd be interested in, we got them on Amazon, and uh, they're about seven or eight bucks a piece, and you can find one, but uh, it, it's a good thing to be able to take notes, and I think just encouraging the students to do so in a way that is on their level and geared for them, uh, I think it's just a really really good thing as well. So if you've got your Bibles, head on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be closing down chapter 12 today. We finally made it. It's just taken us about seven weeks to get here. Um, but as we go through chapter 12, I want, to just, I want to just pause as we've done the last several weeks and just recap where we've been um, just to catch us all up again, maybe remind us and just for us to just refresh for a moment before we go on together. And so here's what we've been looking at over the last several weeks through chapter 12. We began in the beginning of August just thinking about how in the New Testament, and I should say in the Scriptures, um, there are what's called signs and wonders. And God does them, and God has done them through different individuals and then there are spiritual gifts. And we began our look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 just trying, to, just trying to understand that signs and wonders are not spiritual gifts. And we're part of a, a fellowship, we're a part of a denomination that I, I think traditionally, it's never been an official statement that's ever been made, but I think the tradition has been that some spiritual gifts no longer are for today because they were sign gifts. And so we'd say, well, those aren't, those aren't any longer. They were first century things, maybe second century things. But then there's some gifts that are edifying gifts, and those are for today. But I think we can see in the New Testament that spiritual gifts are just spiritual gifts. They're not signs and wonders, and both are true. God does both. He did both, but they were different, and they are not the same. And I think some distinction there is helpful. And so signs and wonders were done at the hands of the apostles and three other individuals for, three very, or for a very specific reason, whereas spiritual gifts are given to all believers. You place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are given at least one gift from the Holy Spirit to build up the body of Christ. And that's what we looked at in week two, that spiritual gifts are given for building up the body or disciple making. And so our mission as a local church here is to glorify God by being disciple making disciples. Jesus used that phrase, that term, make disciples in Matthew 28. Paul uses the phrase building up of the body throughout most of 1 Corinthians. The two terms are largely synonymous. And so you and I have been called, we've been commanded to make disciples, to build up the body, and then we are gifted to do just that. Well, like any of God's very good things, there's also deception. And so we have to be asking ourselves the question, who do we follow? Who do we, 
listened to. And Paul addresses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. He does so in 2 Corinthians. Jesus addresses that in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7. There, is, there are large sections of scripture that talk about false prophets and false teachers and false apostles. There's, there is deception that is in the works in this area of life and ministry. And so we need to have some ways to discern whether or not that person or that ministry or that denomination is worth following and participating in. And so then we started to understand, try to, the, to, to break down and understand the gifts. And in the divine variety, we looked at verses 4, 5, and 6 to see that there's sovereignty over the variety. There are different gifts given to each of us. We're not given the same gifts. There's different areas of service. Take that to mean there's different areas that your gift is going to be used. So even if it's the same gift, you might use it in a different area than somebody else. So for example, let's just take the gift of teaching. You may have the gift of teaching. Somebody else may have the gift of helping. Different gifts, but it's the same God that gives them. Let's just take then the gift of teaching. Some of you taught adult classes today. Others you have taught children classes today. It could be the same gift, but there's just a different area that the gift is used. And neither one are more or less significant than the other. And then in verse 6, there's different activities or there's different results. That God himself empowers the results that happen. And so you may have the gift of teaching and your faithfulness in teaching might look different than somebody else's faithfulness in teaching around the world or in a different part of our city. And what matters is you being faithful to where God has called you and utilizing and stewarding the gift he's given you, not comparing yourself to somebody else and the way their gift may use when, or may look when it is used. And so then we, in verses 8 to 10, tried to unpack and understand the gifts which led us then to understand this metaphor of the body of Christ that begins in verse 12 of chapter 12 and goes all the way through verse 27 that we'll see here in just a moment again. And the idea there is Paul's giving us a picture to understand what it looks like to have different gifts but operate together. And he says, just think about your human bodies. Think about how your human bodies have different parts. And those different parts have different functions and there's different things that they do. And you don't want all of your body to be one part. You need multiple parts. And the parts shouldn't compete with one another and they shouldn't talk down to one another because they've been given a different job. And they have different functions and all are needed. And that's this picture of the body of Christ. Expressed locally, sure. Expressed globally as well. That we are members individually of the body of Christ and we've been given gifts and the gifts I've been given are different than the gifts you've been given and the places I use my gifts might be different than the places that you use your gifts and the results that happens when I use mine and you use yours might look different but it's it's God who actually determines those things and it doesn't make any one of us more or less significant to the body our value is not determined by our role and so last week, we then thought specifically that this breaks down into two sub-points as well, that we don't get to say to ourselves, you're not needed. See, this isn't the, oh, little me, what do I have to offer? Paul says, no, you don't get to actually say that. There's nobody too young. There's nobody too old. 
There's no requirement for seminary education for you to use your gifts and to build up the body. What's required is obedience. And so you matter. And you being here matters. And you using the gifts that you have matters. But then we, we don't get to turn to other people and say, I matter more than you. See, the first is a, it's a way for us to say no to self-deprecation. The second is a way for us to say no to self-exaltation. We don't think more of ourselves because our gifts might look different. Our role doesn't determine our value. God does, and he gives us different roles. And so as we get into verses 27 to 31, we're, we're kind of wrapping up this body idea but Paul then introduces some other ideas and terms into the mix that we need to just try to unpack and understand because it's about how the body functions and what God has designed and what he has arranged in his body for how it's to work. So let's pray before we go any further and then we'll begin taking a look at verses 27 and following. Would you join me? Well, Lord, we... We pray now and we come and invite you to be here in our midst as our teacher. God, I pray that you would guard my words from error. That what I say would be, would be accurate, what it is that you have said. God, would you help us to understand what you have said? Would you help us to see clearly God, would you help us to further get our minds wrapped around what it means to be a body and what it is that you have arranged and intended for your body to be and how you've arranged and designed it to function. This body is the body of Christ. He is the head. So just even now we... Submit ourselves to him. We pray this in his good name. Amen. Well, let's go to verse 27 here. We're going to see that big idea of body emerge. And then in verse 28, we're going to have, again, a statement about God's activity and sovereignty in what's going on in this body. Verse 27 is it's just a summary of where we've been. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So it's just a way for Paul to tie it all back together. You've got different roles, you're different parts, but you're individually a part of something bigger, the body of Christ. In verse 28, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, and he continues. And we have some different words introduced now. We've heard about miracles, we've heard about gifts of healings, we've heard about prophecy, we've heard about helping, well we've not heard about helping, but we've heard about tongues, we've looked at those things a few weeks ago, but apostles, prophets, and teachers show up. And just to put all my cards on the table for you, verse 28 is a verse that's not with a lot of agreement throughout the evangelical world. There's a lot of disagreement about what the details mean and whether or not what Paul writes about in verse 28 are offices or whether or not they are gifts. 
And there's, there's some, some different ways to understand that. And so I want to just try to walk through that. I want to give you what my convictions are and what I believe the scriptures teach. And here's another instance where it's, un, un, I wouldn't say unfortunately, it's, it's just easier to spend our time talking about what this doesn't mean than what it does. But I want to try to do the opposite. I want to try to unpack what this does mean. Because I think God does intend for these things to be for us. Spiritual gifts are for today for us. And so we need to understand them. So I'll just throw my cards then even further on the table to let you know that I think as Paul writes in verse 28 about first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers, he's writing about offices. And he introduces these offices into the conversation and does so for some very unique purposes. And he's not doing so to, to, to say that there's a hierarchy in the church. But what he's saying is that there's an establishment of authority. And that word authority is going to be a really important word. And I would submit to you that Apostles, prophets, and teachers in verse 28 are offices, but when he shifts to miracles, he returns back to gifts. The reasons why I would say that would be in part because of Paul's use of the ordinal numbers, first, second, and third. It's unique to this verse. It doesn't show up anywhere else, and it's signaling to us, in my opinion, that something unique is being discussed here. I think another reason is just for what Paul and how Paul uses the words apostles and prophets and teachers elsewhere. So I want to define some terms. I want to try to be clear. And so just to be clear before we go any further in saying that I believe apostles, prophets, and teachers are offices, I furthermore believe that the office of apostle and the office of prophet are no longer for today. And that the office of teacher is seen in what we would refer to as elder. I think we'll, I'll try to unpack that. I, I think we can perhaps understand that. But let's just try to define some terms. What does the word apostle mean? We'll spend a little bit more time on apostle than we do the other ones. But what does the word apostle mean? Well, in its very most simplest form, it means messenger. It means sent one. It might mean delegate. And it's used in the New Testament to refer to somebody with extraordinary status. Think of Peter, Paul, James, John, and somebody that doesn't have extraordinary status. You can think of Epaphroditus, who Paul says in Philippians 2 is an apostle to the Philippian church. So you'd have somebody with extraordinary status being Paul, Peter, James, John. Somebody without extraordinary status, maybe Epaphroditus, maybe Titus from 2 Corinthians 8, maybe Junia from Romans 16, but there's a significant difference between the two. And as you're thinking about the differences of apostle, here's where we see the differences lie in a primary sense. There's a difference in the authority of the one who does the sending. And then there's a difference of authority given to the one who sent. I'll try to illustrate that for you. The idea that there's a difference of authority in the one who does the sending. Think about it this way. President Trump has the authority to send delegates to the United Nations. 
The New York Times is also able to send messengers or representatives to the United Nations. But there is a distinct level of difference between official delegates to the UN and news reporters. They have a different function. They have a different role. They're there there to serve a different job and to accomplish a different task. And what you see there is the authority of the one sending is different. The President of the United States has a different level of authority than a local newspaper does. And so the one who is sent is going to operate in a different level of authority. That's the first distinction that we see with apostles. So that means that when Jesus calls and commissions Paul to go be an apostle to the Gentiles, there's an authority that Jesus has that nobody else has. But when Paul says to the Philippians that Epaphroditus is your apostle, he doesn't have the same level of authority. So he can use that word, and by using that word, he can mean messenger. Epaphroditus carried messages on behalf of Paul and the Philippians back and forth. He can mean messenger, and that's the way it's actually translated in our Bibles. You may have a footnote in verse 25 of Ephesians 2, but odds are you might not even have that because the English translations have just decided to not use the word apostle, so there's not confusion. But the level of authority that the sender has matters. But let's say the sender is the same. The sender, even if it's the same individual, can send people to even the same place with different levels of authority. So let's unpack it this way. I'm trying to get a good-sized group of people from our church to go to National Conference in Winona Lake this coming July. It's called Access 2020. Every year it's our Fellowship's National Conference. I'd love to take 10 different people bunch of different families. I think it'd be a great time. I think there'd be a lot of value in that. I would love for our church to maybe even consider if there's some ways we can help offset some cost to send some of those people. But our church gets delegates at conference. Because of the size of our church, we get three delegates at conference. And this is what we do at the year-end business meeting where there's that last motion made at the end of the meeting before we adjourn to give the senior pastor and the vice moderator the authority to appoint delegates to national conference. I mean, this is what we're talking about right here. And everybody says yes, and then John and I just figure out who's going to conference. And it's usually just been carrierized. So we've just always had two out of three of our seats filled. Well, if we send 10 people to conference this coming year, 10 adults, it might be more people in total, there will be three sent from our church that have different levels of authority than the other remaining ones from the group, even though they're still sent by our church. You tracking with that? So even if the sender is the same, the one sent may have different levels of authority, those three delegates are going to vote at a business meeting. They're officially representing you at the ballot box. The other ones are just along for the ride and participants, even though the church sent them. And so as we think about this idea, this word, apostle, the best way that I think for us to unpack and understand it is to try to distinguish between an office 
and a gift. Jesus does the gifting by the Holy Spirit. Jesus does the calling and commissioning. But there's a different level of of authority given to those who were called to the office of apostle as opposed to those who were given the gift of apostle. And these distinctions here, they, they actually matter tremendously so. Just briefly try to highlight some of how they matter. And they matter in how we organize ourselves. And they matter all around this word authority. Here's how they matter um, in just some of the distinctions just with different denominations. The Catholic Church believes in what's called apostolic secession. So the Pope and the archbishops, I think even down to the level of bishops, would trace their authority to be bishops all the way back to Peter. And so when the Pope speaks ex-cathedra from the chair, he does so as the Catholic Church teaches, infallibly. Now, that's not to say that the Catholic Church believes that the Pope is perfect. They just believe that when he speaks ex cathedra in matters of doctrine in an official, clarifying way, he does so infallibly, and his words are to be taken with the level of perfection and authority that the words of Scripture have. And we would disagree, and Protestants have disagreed for about, well, a couple thousand years about that fact. So there's a distinction there, but it matters. There's another distinction that's perhaps a little bit closer to home, because it's not on the Protestant-Catholic lines. It's, it's part of the belief of what I've been trying to just talk about briefly about the New Apostolic Reformation. And the term New Apostolic Reformation comes from this aspect. The foundational part of this teaching lies with the continuance of an office of apostles. So let me just read briefly for you. There, one of their writers, the man who coined the term actually, writes this, until recently the central focus of authority in our churches existed in groups, not individuals. Trust has been placed in sessions, nominating teams, deacon boards, trustees, uh, congregational votes, conventions. Rarely has trust for ultimate decision making been given to individuals such as pastors or apostles. However, this is changing decisively in the new apostolic reformation. There's some significant differences there. One of the things that I've been trying to do over the last five years is we've worked through some of our foundational documents and updated our constitution and and tried to begin employing a, a team idea is try to work very, very specifically against ultimate decision making being put in my lap. It's not where I believe it should be. I don't want it. In our church, we would say that the congregation has that authority. You delegate that authority to an elder team that leads. They, in turn, delegate a certain level of authority and responsibility to myself. But this buck doesn't stop here. Nor do I believe it should. But if you believe the office of apostle still exists today and that there are men who have the level of authority as Peter and Paul did, 
then you find yourself in that spot where one person is responsible for ultimate decision-making because he's been acknowledged to be the apostle. So there's the gift of apostle. There's the office of apostle. Let's just try to define some of these things. The office of apostle was those who witnessed the ministry of Jesus and were specifically commissioned by Christ to be his authorized messengers. There's two points of qualification that have to be met that the New Testament gives us for somebody to be called an apostle. We see both of them on display in Acts chapter 1 when the group of 120 disciples gathered in the upper room after Jesus ascended and they were trying to figure out who was going to replace Judas. Judas had taken his life. Matthew stands up. He quotes, uh, Peter stands up. He quotes from the Old Testament. They decide they need to replace Judas. And the first point of qualification is that they need to find somebody who had seen the Lord, the life and ministry of Jesus, and able to testify firsthand of his resurrection. Secondly, they must have been immediately called. To that office by Jesus. So let's just see there in the text. So one of the men, this is Peter speaking, we're looking for one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went out and out, in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become a witness to his resurrection. We're looking for somebody who had seen firsthand the life and ministry of Jesus. Secondly, they were looking for somebody who was called and commissioned by Jesus. There was a moment that the gospel accounts record for us where Jesus does that. He goes away, prays, comes back, called the disciples whom he chose from them, twelve, and he named them apostles. In that upper room when Judas is replaced, those disciples... And the eleven apostles discerned Matthias' calling by casting lots. They prayed over the lots that they cast. They cast the lots. They had two men that they put forward. The lot was cast and they said, okay, the Lord has spoken. That's how they discerned the call of Matthias. Paul talks about his own call in the beginning of 1 Corinthians. He's been called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul, quite frequently in his letters, especially Galatians and his personal testimony in Acts, even in 1 Corinthians, talks about how he was appeared to by Jesus. Jesus appeared to him. In Galatians, Paul talks about spending three years in the Arabian desert with Jesus being taught the gospel. And that was before he went up to Jerusalem and then joined and began his first ministry journey. So even in the Apostle Paul, who wasn't one of the original 12, you have both of these qualifications being met. So there's an office of apostle. Those who have personally witnessed the life and ministry of Jesus and been called to that task. That, that office, I would submit to you, has ceased. But the gift is still alive it's very much a gift that Jesus gives. It's very much a giftedness that he gives to both men and women. The gift of apostle is not dependent on any gender. 
It can be given to men and women. So just very simply say the gift of apostle is to those gifted to take the gospel where it's never been. Ephesians 4.11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. There's a distinction in Ephesians 4 where gifts are on display there. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to spend some time with church planners, but by and large, those who plant churches, those who are pioneer missionaries, they have the gifting of apostle. Now, we use the term church planner, we use the term missionary, because it's a little less cumbersome, because we don't have to work through all of that, well, are, when they speak, are they revealing scripture? Do we consider them authoritative like Paul? Nobody's saying that about the church planners in our fellowship, but we are saying that God's gifted and impassioned them to go take the gospel where it's never been. And I tell you what, they think of places that the gospel's never been that my mind just doesn't even comprehend. And if you ever spend any time with them, it's amazing to just hear these men and women talk about it. You just hear, it's like you poke them and it, it just oozes out of them. I gotta go take the guy, go- we gotta go plant a church. What do you mean? That city's got like eight churches in it. They need another one. They just want the gospel to go where it's never been before. Frontier missionaries, incredibly similar as well. This gift is still alive and active. I would say this is not what Paul's talking about there in 1 Corinthians 12, 28. There he is talking about the office of apostle and he's just establishing a, 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 an order of authority. And secondly then he references prophets. So similarly to apostle, I would submit that we need to think about prophet in the same way. That there's an office of prophet and there's a gift of prophecy. The office of prophet, just think Old Testament prophet. Think Isaiah, think Ezekiel, think Amos, Hosea, all of those guys that we can't ever remember all of their names. Like, think of those dudes. Think of John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets. Prophets were those who were called to speak authoritatively for God. Now, the office of a prophet had some pretty stringent requirements to it. And the requirement that was most stringent was the requirement of perfection. And so in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord reveals to Moses this requirement. And he says, but to the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or he who speaks in the name of another god, that same prophet shall die. So there is a death penalty. If you presume to speak, thus saith the Lord, and the Lord didn't saith. But he continues in answering the question, how shall we know if the word of the Lord has not been spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if his word doesn't come to pass or come true, that word from the Lord was not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. He's presumed you need not to be afraid. The standard of perfection and the penalty of death accompanied the office of prophet. We don't see that in the New Testament with the gifting of prophecy. So there's a gift of 
prophecy. As we tried to define it a couple weeks ago, it's those gifted to proclaim and explain God's word. And at times receive spontaneous insights regarding the explanation and application of God's word from the Holy Spirit. Here's how we generally refer to this. And we're not terribly uncomfortable with this all the time. Maybe sometimes, but not all the time. We preface it with the phrase, the Lord laid it on my heart. I would submit to you that if somebody's ever said that to you, it's probably this gift of prophecy at work. Now, in that moment, you are not obligated to obey them the way those who heard from the Lord's prophets that held office are obligated to obey. And they're not obligated to be perfect in what they have to say to you in the way that those prophets were obligated to be perfect. And there's not a death penalty that's in play. And so what do we do in that moment? Well, here's what I've tried to do. Sometimes it unnerves me a little bit when somebody has something like that that they want to share with me. Here's what I try to do. I try to stick it in the maybe folder. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 19, I believe, maybe it's 20, do not despise prophecies. Test everything. So it goes in the maybe folder. I've had people tell me that the Lord's anointing on my life is to preach and not do music. I've had other people tell me the Lord's anointing on my life is to do music and not preach. I don't know. It's going to go in the maybe folder. And I'm going to be trying to be faithful with whatever the Lord has given me for whatever moment he's given it to me. Somebody might have come up to you at some point in your history and just said, you know, I was, I was praying, I was reading God's word, and the Lord just laid it on my heart that I needed to share this verse with you. I think that's this gift. But I think the gift and the operation of it is restricted to the explanation, proclamation, and application of God's word. So those that want to say, like, the Lord revealed to me that you're going to get a pay raise and you're going to come into all of this X, Y, and Z. Like I, I just don't see that in the New Testament as being how the gift operates. The gift is going to be restricted to God's word and the explanation of it, the application of it. And we put those things in the maybe folder where they're not clearly, absolutely, directly in line with God's word. We test them. We pray about them. But God gifts his church. He gives his church these gifts. And we're going to see this in 1 Corinthians 14 a whole lot more where Paul says, look, I wish all of you would do this. When you gather, have two or three people stand up and, and share what the Lord has laid on their hearts, as we would give the term, and then let everybody else test it. Decide if it needs to be kept or not. I mean, that's some of the instructions he gives to this church because he wants them to be thinking about these things. Well, similarly to, to apostle and prophet, I think there's also then an office of teacher, which, as I hinted at in the beginning, I see as functioning today in the office of elder. And then there's a gift of teaching. And I will just be fully transparent with you that I'm not sure my, my foundation exegetically, my support Biblically is nearly as strong on this point as other points. And so I want to hold these conclusions loosely. Very, very confident about 
apostle and prophet. Maybe not as confident about this one, but I see it in play. And it's because of what the role, the unique role that elders have to teach doctrine and guard doctrine. The idea of teaching is the teaching of the scriptures. Elders are the only office in the church where that is a qualification that they be able to teach. And it is a very specific function of them guarding doctrine. But then there's the gift of teaching. And the gift of teaching, again, is for men and women. There's no gender that is specific to the gift of teaching. And it is those who the Holy Spirit gifts to teach God's word. But it's distinct from the office of elder. And I I think just having some language for and to understand office and gift is helpful. It protects us when we think about things such as apostle and prophet. Because I think that language, if we're not careful, can lead us to think that there are individuals that have the same level of authority that Peter and Paul and James and John did. And I don't believe you can biblically support those conclusions. And today in the church, my conviction is that God has given the responsibility or the authority to the congregation who then delegates a good majority of that to a plurality of elders. And so it's not just one man. It's a group of men. The buck doesn't stop here. The responsibility of leadership has been given to our team of elders. And we're responsible to you, the congregation. And there's some things you've told us you can't, we can't do. And there's some things you've said we want you to do. So here in about two months, we're going to have a fall business meeting and we'll walk through some of those things because we don't get to pass a budget. You do. It's one of the ways that we have some, I think, appropriate checks and balances in there. But the point being, this does not roll up to one man. Authority does not exist in an individual. It exists in a group ultimately, to the congregation. So then Paul steps into what I believe then are gifts, where he begins miracles. And he does so, and I think the transition between first, second, third, and then his word then is important. So then there's miracles. Then there's gifts of healings. And we're not going to spend time this morning defining those, because we've already done so. But there are two new gifts that show up that did not show up before. And that's the gift of helping and the gift of administrating. Now, this word helping, this word administrating, this is the only place in the New Testament these two words show up. So not entirely sure how to define them. There's not a wide sample section available for us to cross-reference our definitions. But they're not terribly difficult to get to either. So helping... Those gifted with the ability or capacity to assist. That's a really fancy way to say those who help. You know people like this. You call them. They will come, drop whatever they're doing, stay as long as it takes, do whatever needs to be done, because that's just who they are. They help. Tremendous, tremendous value in the, in the local church. 
administration and be those gifted to lead or manage. The, the, the closest relative of this word has, has its connotations in a ship captain. So think of the individual responsible for leading and directing a ship. It's this idea of administrating, those gifted to lead and manage. Verse 29, part of the point of what Paul's writing is to say there are different roles. And not everybody in the body is going to have the same role. And so he launches into seven rhetorical questions, all of which anticipate and demand the answer, no. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healings? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. In verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will still show you a more excellent way. Verse 31 is another troublesome verse. Because it's difficult to understand and get our minds wrapped around and bring definition to what Paul means by his command to earnestly desire. Some take his word, that verb there, as a condemnation. So it would read that you are earnestly desiring the higher gifts, and I'll show you a more excellent way. There's actually, you can, you can make that conclusion based on the Greek. It's probably most likely a command, just like our English Bibles have it to be. But in that, then the word higher matters. Or perhaps your translation says greater. And here's where we need to just remind ourselves that throughout all of chapter 12, Paul has gone to great lengths to communicate that there is not a hierarchy of gifts. There are different gifts that are given by God. There are different places those gifts are used. There are different results that happen when those gifts are used, but all, verse 7, chapter 12, all are empowered by the same Spirit. Every one of the gifts of the Spirit are supernatural. Some may look a little bit more spectacular. Some may have a little bit more flair. But all of them are supernatural. So there's not a list of higher gifts and lower gifts. So then what happens and what's probably most likely what Paul is doing is he's using the word higher as a bit of a sarcasm. And he's saying, hey Corinthians, you guys have divided yourselves saying that some gifts are more important than other gifts because they look a little bit more spectacular than other gifts do. But you know what's far greater than any man-made definition of gifts that you would have? Love. This more excellent way. And so his command to earnestly desire the higher gifts is not a command for us to figure out what gifts are greater and what gifts are lesser. Because that completely ignores the argument he's made throughout all of chapter 12. It's a way for us to understand that he's redefining terms. The Corinthians had done a great job dividing themselves. They did so because of ethnicity. They did so because of nobility. They did so because of wisdom and education. They did so because of social status. They did so because of gender. They found all sorts of ways to divide themselves. And Paul says, this is not a place to divide yourselves. 
There are distinctions that exist. But what is far greater than any and all of those distinctions, this more excellent way, is love. And so regardless what gifts you've been given, regardless of where those gifts are going to get used, regardless of who is the one you're building, regardless of what the results are as you serve, as you make disciples, as you build up the body, God's in control of it all. And from our perspective, what matters more than any external results is our loving one another. It's not creating distinctions between each other because somebody's gift looks better than somebody else's gift. Or somebody's area of serving is more important, quote-unquote, than somebody else's area. The more excellent way is to love. And as Paul's going to begin in chapter 13, and we'll unpack this next week, it doesn't matter how great your gifts are, if you don't love, you've missed the whole point. Let's pray as the band comes up. Well, God, would you help us to do that? Would you help us to love? God, would you help us to see that you give the distinctions between different gifts? And it doesn't matter if our gift is helps. It doesn't matter if our gift is teaching. It doesn't matter if we're, if we're gifted to take the gospel to where it's never been before. You give those gifts. You give the areas those gifts are to be used. You give the results that those gifts are going to bring with them for your glory and the building up of the body, and it is not about us, it is about you. So God, help us to obey you in the areas that you have given us to use our gifts, and help us to love well as we use our gifts. We pray this in Jesus' good name, amen.